we talked about last week and as we're going to continue talking about, um, the mission that God has invited us all to participate in is one that is huge, right? And so as individuals, uh, if we try to do that on our own, it is way too burdensome for one person to carry the weight of the mission of reaching all nations, right? It's impossible. And so what do individuals do? They, they get together and they form local churches, right? And, and, and they do it together in community with relationships that many of us have here in this room with one another. Um, however, even for one church, right, God's mission is, is too big for any one church to do on their own. And so, uh, so what happens is churches work together and partner together all around the world to collectively as one global church uh, seek to glorify uh, God in all that we do and proclaim his name and, and seek to advance the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so it is a cooperative uh, effort by all believers. And so what a joy is that we get to partner with the North American Mission Board uh, and just partner with other churches uh, in North America and missions efforts here. And so um, as the video suggested, you can give. And we're going to you know, ask uh, this season, this Easter season of, of giving toward to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Uh, if you're interested in doing that, you can either fill out the envelopes for those of you who use envelopes and just dedicate it towards uh, Annie Armstrong. Or if you choose to give online at abcjax.org. Um, there's a way to designate it for Annie Armstrong there as well. Um, so with that being said, I want to go ahead and take a moment just to pray um, for churches in general, uh, as well as the, the gifts that are going to go to the North American Mission Board. So if you would pray with me. Lord, we love you. Uh, and God, we just thank you that um, you have saved us. We thank you that you gave us Jesus uh, to be reconciled back into yourself. Um, Lord, we thank you that as if that wasn't enough, you have invited us into the greatest mission that exists, that we get to not only be recipients of the good news, but we get to be participators in sharing the good news as well. And that we get to do that alongside other individuals and other churches all around uh, the United States and the city of Jacksonville and in the world. Um, and so, God, I thank you that uh, you are a God that is that big to unite us all um, around a common mission and a common effort to know you and to make you known. And so, Lord, we just lift up uh, these gifts, these funds that are going to go towards supporting um, local churches uh, in North America uh, and efforts of reaching those here. Um, that God, you would begin preparing the hearts for those that might be affected. Um, and just remind us all, Lord, that we are one church. Uh, we might be in, in different cities and different places, but, but it is your church uh, represented locally in, in different ways. And so I thank you for this local church, uh, Arlington Baptist Church. And I thank you for, for all those churches who have been raised up uh, Bible-believing, Bible-proclaiming, uh, mission-participating, and just pray that you would help us, uh, not even help us, but that you would work through us to make your name known. And so, Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we're just excited uh, to see what you choose to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are going to be, as I've said a few times already, talking about local church missions uh, this morning. But before we do, I want to share a couple uh, illustrations with you, a couple stories. And the reason I'm sharing a couple is because I, I want to try to convey this thought or this idea, and I, I couldn't find one story to do it, so maybe a couple uh, will help. But, um, but I don't know if, if you're like myself. Um, I have found, I, I think this is probably common, that most people tend to like to do things that they're kind of good at, right? I don't know a lot of people, or it's less common for people to really, really enjoy something that they're really not very good at, right? Uh, now, maybe you can think of a couple things. For me, there's one thing that stands out that, that kind of goes against that rule, and it's, it's golf. Right? I love golf, 
Uh, but I'm just not very good at golf, and I've accepted that, and that's okay. Um, but I, I love it, and I, I used to work at a golf pro shop, and, um, and I love watching it and learning about different clubs and, and different things that would come into the shop. And, um, and I remember I actually loved it so much that I bought a really expensive driver. I was like 18 years old, thinking that that'll make me better if I just get a really nice driver, which was not true. And um, then a few years later, I had the same driver, and, uh, which is a golf club, for those of you who don't know much about golf. And I went to Top Golf for the first time. And Top Golf is kind of like a, uh, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's basically a, a driving range that has like an arcade style game to it. And one of the things I didn't know is that it's not really meant to reflect actual golf. And so nobody really brings their own clubs to Top Golf. But I was the guy who brought his own clubs to Top Golf. And I've got my driver. And I take one swing, my first swing, and the driver head snaps off from the shaft and goes flying out into the range. Um, and I was really sad for the rest of my time uh, playing, but it ended up turning into a good thing because what it did is it gave me an excuse for when I played golf after that, right? Because I didn't have a driver anymore, right? And so I was playing without something needed to do well. And so if I didn't do well, which I wasn't gonna do well anyway, um, I could say, oh, well, it's because I don't have a driver, right? Um, and I don't know about you, but have you ever found yourself in a similar situation where you were almost like uh, uh, kind of self-sabotage, right, for or put yourself, kind of give yourself a handicap so that you can't do something, right? Or, or, or in that illustration, that's kind of like a willingness to do that, right? Like I'm putting myself at a, at a detriment or at a disadvantage, right, so I have an excuse. And sometimes we don't really want to have an excuse, but we still find ourselves at a disadvantage. Uh, best example I could come up with is there's a, uh, a card game. Has anyone in here heard the card game called Euchre? A few people. And I would be willing to bet that most people who raise their hand learned that because you're from the North or the person that taught you that game is from the North. It's a Northern card game. Um, and once you learn it, it's not really that complicated, but for some reason it's a really hard game to teach. Like there's a, a long learning curve and because I love it, I've tried to teach it to a lot of people. And usually what happens is they find that they're not very good at it because there's a lot of strategy that you have to develop over playing. And so then they never end up sticking with it long enough to get good enough to play regularly. And it's because you're still learning new rules and still learning new strategies. And so they're at a disadvantage, right? Every time they play, because they don't know all the rules, because they don't know the strategies, they're at some kind of disadvantage. And so it kind of handicaps their ability to play the game well. Uh, or, or last example I'll give, maybe paint it this way, is uh, have you ever found yourself building something? We'll say putting some kind of furniture together, right? And you're really struggling, you can't figure it out, uh, and then you get kind of towards the end, sort of, and you realize that you've been missing a piece that you needed all along, right? And the reason you couldn't put it together is because you were never going to be able to put it together because you were missing a piece. And so, so sometimes we, we, we position ourselves that way on purpose, like I did with the golf club. Right? Sometimes we find that it's a, just a learning curve where we're, there's going to be a season where we're not able to do something, but we're, we're growing in our ability to understand. And there's going to be other times where we're finding we're just missing a piece, but all the while the task at hand or the goal is made either impossible to complete or really, really, really difficult. Right, and last week we talked about evangelism, personal evangelism, and there are certain things that, certain knowledges or certain experiences, if you don't have, 
it, there are some that actually eliminates your ability to evangelize at all. Right? For example, if you don't know Jesus, you can't tell people about Jesus. Right? If you don't know the gospel, you can't share the gospel. Right? But there are also elements and things that God commands in Scripture that if we don't understand or if we don't know, if we're not abiding by, it may not make our task impossible, but it will make it next to impossible. And one of the things that I believe, and I think Scripture supports as well, is that our involvement in, loc- in the local church um, has a direct impact on our ability to personally be on mission and evangelize to other people. Right? And without the local church, we are operating at a deficit. We are operating handicapped. Right? We, we, we might, God may still redeem our, our, our crazy efforts or attempts to do it outside of the context of a local church, but I would argue it's next to impossible. And it's difficult and it's frustrating and it's not fruitful. He's gifted us the local church as a vehicle for us to, to, to together right, be on mission so that his name can be made known. And so, so what I'll do is kind of put that all into one main point, and then we're going to show how that point kind of has two implications for us as believers, and then we're going to see that play out through Ephesians chapter 2. And so here's the main point for this morning. Your individual capacity for impacting God's kingdom is directly tied to your involvement in a local church. Say it again. Your individual capacity for impacting God's kingdom is directly tied to your involvement in a local church. Now, as I say that, I want to give three kind of clarifications of what I don't mean in that statement. The first is when I say individual capacity, I don't mean that you, to your own doing, have a capacity to, to, to advance God's kingdom. Rather, the capacity that God is working in you, right? It's not your capacity. If you try hard or will yourself really hard, you can make an impact on the kingdom. It is God through you that is making the impact and God through who who gives you the ultimate capacity with which to share the gospel and have an impact on his kingdom. So that's the first clarification. Second thing is when I say directly tied to, what I don't want it to sound like is that being on personal mission and being involved in local church are just separate things, right? Because what I want to talk about today is how I think that they overlap. They are kind of together. They're, they're, they're shared. I don't mean for them to sound separate when I say directly tied to one another, nor do I want it to sound like uh, it's, it's like a one-for-one ratio, right? If you invest one hour into the local church, you'll see one hour of fruitfulness in your personal mission, right? That's not what I mean either, but rather they are overlapping and go hand in hand. And then the third clarification, which we're really going to talk more about as we go, is, is when I say local church, what I mean is not a building or, or, a, or an attendance even, but that we God's people make up his local church. And so I'll explain that in a little bit more depth as we go. But that idea, that truth, that, that our ability, right, our capacity for sharing the gospel, for impacting God's kingdom, being connected with our involvement in a local church has two implications for us as believers. We're going to talk about today. The first, there's a gospel implication, and second, there's what I would call practical implication. The gospel implication is this, is that you can't communicate the fullness of the gospel outside of being connected to a local church. I'm going to explain that in more depth in a moment, but but you cannot demonstrate or communicate the fullness of the gospel outside of 
your participation, involvement, and connectedness to a local church. And again, that might sound like a big statement, and we're going to come back to it in just a moment, but that's the gospel implication. The, The practical implication is this, is that there are certain things you can't do outside of local church involvement, meaning not only is, is, is our participation in the local church a part of what the gospel message is and what restoration looks like, which we'll see, but also there are specific practical commands that God gives in Scripture that only can happen in a local church, right? Meaning that you can, you can say, you know, I'm a Christian, I know the gospel, and, and be outside of it, but there will always be certain things you cannot obey if you are individually separated from a specified body of believers in your local community. So those are the implications, gospel and practical. So let's start with the gospel implications. And we're going to do, just to kind of give you a bird's eye view, we're going to walk through all of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to do a kind of bird's eye view as we look at the gospel implications. And then we're going to narrow down into verses 19 through 22 to look at the practical implications. But first, let's start with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read it slowly, and just as I read this, and as you turn, I'd invite you to do so. Um, this is one of those passages that, that preaches for itself. Right? Had I just memorized these verses and just said them, they, they just preach for themselves. And so I'm just going to read it slowly and invite you to just, just soak it in. It says this, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Man, that is a powerful passage of scripture and in essence that's the gospel right that is the good news i notice that it it says first of all he's he's talking specific he says as for you right but then he kind of wraps it around to include all people uh, by saying all of us right for we once were all children under wrath all people have done exactly what he points out here we we have all previously lived according to the ways of the world we have all previously lived among our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh. All people have done that, right? And what that means is we've rebelled against God's original creation, right? He desires for us to live according to his desires, right? But instead, all of us, children under 
wrath have lived according to our fleshly desires. Right? And again, when it says by nature children under wrath, what that means is there's consequence to disobeying God. Right? That he's a just God. He's a holy God. And, and, and unholiness can't coexist with holiness. And so what happens is he's got to punish it. Right? It's, it's deserving then of his wrath. Right? And our crimes are eternally significant. Therefore, they warrant an eternal punishment. When you sin against something perfect, right, you deserve the most imperfect that exists, which is the fullness of God's wrath. Right, that's the state that all people have been in. But verse 4, verse 4 is the powerful turning point of this text. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his love, right, nothing that we could have done wrong because of, of his love for us, he made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, we've been saved by grace through faith. Not by works, so that none of us can say, I did it, but by his doing. We have been brought from death to life. That's a, that's a, a core part of the gospel, and for many of you, this isn't overly new. Right? This gospel implication, well, what does this have to do with my, my personal mission for Jesus and my connectedness to a local church, well, we see that part of the gospel in the next part of Ephesians chapter 2. And so again, well, I would argue that this is maybe more commonly understood part of the gospel. There is a secondary part that I think we may often forget, and maybe it's the gospel implication that because we don't always understand, it's what's caused friction uh, between people nowadays and the church. I can't tell you how many people I know who would call themselves a Christian, and say that they hate the church, which is crazy, right? because Scripture calls the church the bride of Christ. I couldn't imagine somebody coming up to myself and saying, Ty, I really like you, but I hate your wife. Right? That would not fly, as it should not, nor do I think it flies with the God of the universe, right? with the Christ who, who died for us. How can we say we love him and then hate the, the, the bride that he claims the church is to be, right? And so, so clearly there's been some disconnect there, and I think that this secondary uh, understanding of the gospel and the rest of Ephesians 2 can help us mend that gap in our understanding of the gift that the local church is and the, the help that it is in our personal mission of sharing the gospel and making Jesus known. So in Ephesians chapter 2, it continues on, verses 11 through 22. It says this, so then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility 
to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For those, or for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, to sum up the first ten verses that we talked about, you, you see the, the gospel truth that, that people are being reconciled to God. Right? That's what we saw in the first ten verses, right? That, that man rebelled right? and that God re- reconciled rebellious man to himself through the blood of Jesus. Right? That's what we saw in the first ten verses. But we see in the next twelve verses, uh, verses 11 through 22, is we see people being reconciled with people. And, 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 and really, we, we see this right off the bat because in, in the first 10 verses, it's talking about you, it's talking about individuals, for we once all, right, individually, right? And so that's the individual gospel truth that, that we as individuals are reconciled to God. Right? But this passage goes on to talk about the, it, it calls it the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Right, because what was the first thing that happened, right, the first sin we see committed, right, was that they uh, ate the fruit, right? They disobeyed God. They, they broke unity with God the Father, individual relationship. Well, what's the, the next sin we see, right, minus maybe the, the lying and deception as they explain themselves to God? We see the Cain and Abel story. We see one man kill another, right, because not only did our sin break relationship between us and God, but it also broke relationship between us and the people around us. So not only do we need reconciliation between us and God, but we need to be reconciled with one another. If you look around the world today, you can see that people don't know how to have relationships with one another. We are selfish, we are fleshly in our desires, we are are broken, and our relationships with one another are broken as well. And Ephesians 11 through 22 is pointing out this truth, talking about the Again, the, the division between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? The, the dividing wall of hostility that, that, that they're, they're broken amongst one another. Right? And so they too need to be reconciled to one another, which we see happen in these verses. Right? He, he put to death the dividing wall of hostility. Right? It no longer exists. Right? So, so not only is it a gospel truth that we have been reconciled to God, but we can then now be reconciled to one another. Look how it paints the picture of what that, those two people becoming unified. The, the, the subtitle of this passage is Unity in Christ. And so when all those people in the first ten verses understand they've been reconciled to God, what happens is they're invited into a new family, right, where they're reconciled with one another. And no longer does it matter if you're a Jew or, or Gentile or whatever the dividing wall of hostility looked like for those people, but you are now united under Christ, members of one household with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone, built on the teachings of the apostles and the prophets all the way back through the Old Testament who are continuously being built in Christ Jesus daily. And so we are together. So do, you, so do you see how you can't just say, I'm a Christian, I've been reconciled to God. Right, because to say, I'm a Christian, I've been reconciled to God, would also be to say that, that 
along with that, I've been reconciled to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, you, you can't do it separately from one. They, they happen together. We are restored in our relationship with Jesus. We are restored in our relationship with one another. Now, I want to be clear, because what that doesn't mean is that for Christians, every relationship you have is now good and fruitful. Right? Because there is still not peace in all of our relationships. And the reason is because not all of our relationships are with other believers. And that's not to say that all your relationships with believers will always be peaceable. There will at times be conflict. Right? But even in our conflict, we, we, there's, a, there's an inner peace that does not exist among non-believers. Right? And, and, and so the, the, the local church and, and believers coming together, being united, demonstrating this reconciliation is an important part of the gospel message. Right? Because you immediately get invited into God's family. Right? And so if we just stay off on our own as individuals, saying we hate the church and, and, we, and we, we don't cling to it and seek it and love it, then we're missing a big part of it. So that's the gospel implication that we see from from this text, based on that truth, the connectedness between uh, between a local church and our ability to impact, our capacity to impact God's kingdom. Right, we, we're, we're demonstrating that gospel implication by our involvement in the local church, which leads us then to the practical implications. Right, so there's the gospel implications that, that I would argue that without participation and active participation in the local church, we're missing part of the gospel message. There's also practical implications, right? There are certain things you can't do outside of local church involvement, or you can't do to the fullness of what they're meant to do outside of local church involvement. So there's four things I I believe we see in verses 19 through uh, 21, and they start with, uh, well, I'll start in verse 21. Uh, The first one is, is unified in mission. Unified in mission. Verse 21, it says, in him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So, so right off the bat, it says the whole building joined together. The illustration it just gave is that, that we are now a household, right? That, that, that there's, there's two but God statements in Ephesians chapter 2. The first one is, but you have been reconciled to God. And the second one is, but now they have been reconciled to one another, Jews and Gentiles, right? The dividing wall of hostility is gone. Now they're members of one household with Christ as the cornerstone. And it says the, the whole building, right, all of it is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So there's a communal, right, there's a communal uh, act, activity. It's done together. It's the, the mission they are now on is unified. And the idea of the, the, the temple or, or rising to be a holy temple in the Lord is, is symbolic going all the way back to the Old Testament when the first temple was constructed, which wasn't a stationary temple. Right? It was a temple they constructed that could be, uh, basically it was a, a teardown church, essentially. I don't know if you've ever been to a teardown church where you're meeting in a location that's not permanent, and so you set up in the morning, and then you kind of do church together, and you tear down after. That's essentially what they were doing. They weren't necessarily fully tearing down, but they were able to move the temple based on where God's presence led. Right, and so the temple would lead, or God would lead, his presence would lead, and the temple would follow wherever God was going. It was his mission of where he was leading the Israelites. 
right? In the same way, we now, as the temple, right, not just one person, one person can't be the temple on their own. It is a, a collective effort, the whole building being joined together, all members of one household, again, foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ is the cornerstone, are now working together on that one mission. And again, it's not a mission that can be accomplished alone, right? And so if we make the effort to accomplish it on our own, right, then we're either minimizing the, the mission that's at stake to think that it's possible to be done on our own doing, or we're elevating ourselves to think that we're great enough or we're good enough to, to, to reach all people of all nations without any help from anybody else. All right, so the unity in our mission speaks to the, the enormity of the mission that is at hand. Right, to know the infinite depths of who God is and to proclaim those depths to all people of all nations till all knees are bowed, all tongues are confessed that he is Lord. All right, so the first practical implication is that, that we are now unified in this common mission so important that we cannot do it alone. The second thing is this. We are centered on Jesus. Not just unified in mission, but centered on Jesus. Look back at verses 19 and 20. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also, again, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles' and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And this is one of the amazing truths of Scripture, is that, that God is, is, is so big that he exists outside of, of time, space, uh, matter, um, but he created all things, but he's also so personal, right, that he is individually your cornerstone, meaning that that you as a person, or if you imagine a, a, a building, if you remove the cornerstone, the building falls apart. Right? As the cornerstone of our individual lives, like our lives will fall apart. without We, we can't do anything without him. Right? So he's so big that he created all things, but he's still so personal and, and intentional that he cares enough to be the cornerstone of your life. So here's the thing. If we only make him the cornerstone of our life and don't recognize that he is also the cornerstone of the life of the church, then we, again, are minimizing who God is. Right? When we go to share the gospel with other people, right, and we've just made Jesus the cornerstone of our life, and he, he deserves more credit than that. He is the cornerstone of, of the lives of all believers. Right? Then we're minimizing the gospel. Right? He is bigger than just, he is intentional enough and specific enough to love you and I, but he also has done that for every other person. Not just the center of your world, of your world, but of the world. Right? And so we, as a church, live out and, and recognize that, that, that we ought to be in awe and should be centered on Jesus. So unified in mission, centered on Jesus. And then thirdly, we then can be an example of restoration. An example of restoration. Verse 21. Going back to it, it says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Again, in the Old Testament, the temple was a depiction of God's holiness. Uh, if you read through some of the, the early books of the Bible, the law books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you'll see lots of depictions and descriptions given of what the, the temple measurements were to look like and imagery. And, and what you'll find is a lot of them actually reflect uh, the Garden of Eden. 
right? That, that, that was God's original uh, perfect depiction of his holiness he invited man to live into, right? And because sin entered the world, now he's creating this temple to house his presence um, because if his presence existed on the, the entire, if, his, if his, the pure holiness of God existed over the entire face of the earth, then people can't coexist with, with God's holiness, right? And so he put it in this temple, and then he would have all these different laws and, and rituals and things that, that priests had to do to enter into his presence. Otherwise, they would be struck dead, right? So the temple was a depiction of holiness, right? And we, as a whole building, right, united together, fellow citizens with God's people, right, no longer foreigners and strangers from one another, but, but united together as God's household, members of his household, get to be an example of restoration, right, because, again, the, 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 the temple or, or, or us as the ones who ought to have been or should have been God's original temple sinned and broke it. And, and so now he's invited all of us to be in it together, and we together get to demonstrate what that looks like and, and what restoration among one another and to God looks like together. But see, people that don't know Jesus don't know healthy relationships. Right? They can't. They can't. They haven't been reconciled. That's not to say they might not be happy, right? Or they might not like have fun playing board games. Right? But true joy comes only from God, both in our relationship with him and in our relationship with those around us. Right? And as a church family, right, our, our earthly family doesn't just go away, right? but we're gifted a new family when we come to know Jesus. We now have brothers and sisters in Christ. And as a new family with new hearts and, 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 and flesh on our bones, if you will, we get to demonstrate what right family looks like. Right, and one of our, uh, our vision statement as a church is centered around this idea that right, we seek to be a family. Right, and as a family, it is us being a family that inspires people to surrender their lives to Jesus. And as a family, we then disciple one another to serve him better together. I don't know if you know this, um, but there's not a lot of good earthly examples of family out there today. Right, and so we get to be that and to demonstrate that as an example of what restored family looks like. Right, it's hard to tell somebody that Jesus is your, or, or God is your father, right? And for that to mean something positive when they've got a broken understanding of what father means. Right, it's hard to say that these are my brothers and sisters in Christ and for them to know what that means when they've got broken and fractured relationships with their brothers and sisters or their friend groups, or accountability, or whatever relationship they have. Right, so as believers, because we've not only been reconciled to God, we're reconciled to one another, we get to live that out well. Right, not to say that we're perfect, but that we worship the one who is perfect, that he is the cornerstone of our family. Right, and with him, we can't possibly fall apart. Which leads to the last one, which is active accountability. Verse 22, it says that, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And there's two key parts here. The first is, is it says being built, right? That our household, our, co our local collection of believers is, 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 is in progress. It's being built, right? So again, when I said that we're to, to be a, an example of restoration, what that doesn't mean is that we're to be perfect, 
And what it does mean is that we're to cling to Jesus the best we can. He will reveal our imperfections. Right? And then we keep on going. Right? When people say that, man, I don't, I don't like the church because it's a bunch of hypocrites. Right? The best answer is, you know, you're right. Would you like to join us? Right? We, when we try to reflect perfect with this, that's not the point either. Right? The point is that we're centered on Jesus, that we're united in one mission and that we have been restored and all restored together. And so, it is a, so because it's a process, though, uh, we then get to hold one another accountable. Right? It says, and in him you two are being built, and you're being built together. Not you're being built individually, not you're being built right on, in t- on your own, you're being built together. The family that you now are is being built together. And so we get to hold one another accountable which is maybe the greatest of the gifts that the local church is, is that we get to do that together. So what I'm going to do is we're going to close our time together, and I just want to encourage and, and, and challenge us as we leave that, man, God has loved us so much. He has gifted us one another, right? Because here's our church. This is us. I heard a story a long time ago of a, uh, well, I can't remember the names, but uh, it was, Someone in Europe way back when, when the gospel was first starting to spread throughout Europe, there was a particular uh, ruler that did not like that Christianity was spreading. And so he goes to one of the key leaders of the day and says, I want you to give me all your possessions. Uh, and the man he says, if you don't, you're going to be sentenced to death. Right? And so the man goes and thinks about it. And he, he puts a time on it. He gives him a couple of days. And, and that particular leader in that area comes back with every member of their church and said, here, here are the possessions of the church right? because they are the church. We, church, are the church. Uh, and it's important that we live it out well, that we love one another, that we do it together because we can't otherwise. And so I want to pray, and I just want to invite you, wherever you might be, you know, we started off in the first 10 verses of Ephesians, and maybe you realize that, that, that you don't know that part of the gospel. That, that God wants to reconcile you to himself, that, that you've been living in rebellion to, to his will for your life, and, and it's just all kind of clicked this morning, perhaps. And if that's you, I just want to invite you to, uh, to, to surrender your life to him, uh, to, to experience reconciliation with the God who loves you more than anything, who created you and gave him his own self in the person of Jesus for you. If that's you, you're invited to respond this morning. Whether in your seat, whether up front, we would love for you to know this Jesus. Don't go another day. Right? Scripture doesn't say today is the day of salvation. It says now is the day of salvation. Right? Let it be now. And if you've been here for a while and you've realized that you know, I've been following Jesus, I'm not really connected with the church family. Right? We are an imperfect bunch, but we would love to be your church family. Right? We would love to do this together. We would love to to, to seek after Jesus together. We would love to, to I, I got to teach Miss Margie's class this morning, and I, and I love that we just shared some obstacles that, that we have to, to sharing our faith and, and just kind of bounce ideas around one another and, and, and share. That's, that is what we're here to do together. Right? One mission, one God, one church here together. Seek to make him known. So if you found that you've just never really committed to a local church, I just encourage you to do so. Um, and again, we are here, arms open uh, for you to do that. Um, and
And lastly, if you are here and you have been committed here for a long time, um, I just want to encourage you as well uh, to respond however the Holy Spirit might be leading and convicting you. Um, And so we all have a call to respond this morning. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to sing, and we're, as one church, going to just respond together. Um, So if you would just pray with me, uh, we're going to spend the next few moments doing that.